Goddag og velkommen til en podcast, som vi har valgt at kalde Langsomme samtaler med amerikanske intellektuelle. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Det amerikanske valg den 3. november bliver måske det vigtigste valg i vores levetid. For at forstå de lange linjer og de voldsomme opbrud i USA, og for at få rigtig indsigt i klimakamp, demokrati, kapitalisme og hele den moralske orden, har jeg i den her serie valgt at tage kontakt til nogle af de intellektuelle i USA, som jeg allerhelst ville tale med. Den første, det er den amerikanske forsker Robert Reich. Well, good evening Denmark and good morning to you, Professor Reich in California. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I very much appreciate it. Og jeg har altid været meget fascineret af Robert Reich, fordi Robert Reich har på den ene side skrevet nogle af de mest radikalt kritiske bøger om den amerikanske kapitalisme. Han har skrevet nogle bøger om ulighed, om det han kalder The Basic Bargain, om hvordan overklassen løb med pengene og globaliseret smadrede arbejderklassen. Han kan stilles for uden for systemet og beskrive, hvor rådent det er. Men Robert Reich kan også gøre det modsatte. Han kan også sætte sig ind i systemet og være en del af systemet. Han var arbejdsminister under sin gamle ven Bill Clintons præsidentperiode fra 1992 til 1996. Han var blandt rådgiverne på præsident Obamas team i 2008, så han kan kritisere samfundet udefra, og han kan regere samfundet indenfra. Han kan tænke filosofisk, han kan forstå verden sociologisk, han kan økonomi, og han kan de store linjer. I was starting to say, uh, before the audience joined us, uh, that uh, we are unfortunately right now in California in the middle of an environmental reckoning, But as I look out my window, there is smoke in every direction. Og den dag jeg ringede og talte med ham, der var himlen over San Francisco orange. Det var skovbrændende, som man kunne se inden over byen. And this is not just California. This is uh, a half a million people have already been evacuated from the state of Oregon. The state of Washington is also burning. Uh, this is a an environmental catastrophe. Og i den samtale der følger, der er han på den ene side Realistisk alarmist fortæller hvor galt det står til. Is just added to COVID-19 and all of the other emergencies that we are trying to deal with. Men han er også en håbefuld aktivist. Jeg håber at du vil få lige så stor fornøjelse at lytte til min samtale med Rob Reich, som jeg havde endelig at tale med en forfatter, hvis bøger jeg faktisk har læst i 30 år. Do you think this will make any change in America these catastrophes? I, I do. Um, not if Donald Trump remains president after January 20th, but uh, if Joe Biden is president, I think that there will be uh, a major and quite radical uh, shift toward environmental protection. Uh, now, Richard Nixon, uh, ironically, was the president who signed the Environmental Protection Act in the United States in 1970, but environmental Activism has waxed and waned back and forth uh, in the United States, depending upon the president, depending upon uh, how uh, the public perceived the issue. It has never been at the top of the public's agenda or near the top of the public agenda. And I think this is changing because not only is the West now burning in the United States, that is Oregon, California, Washington, Colorado, many other states, Uh, but we have floods and hurricanes and extreme weather all around the United States. And this is the kind of wake-up call that I expect 
to have very strong political consequences. You've had, like you said, different awakenings, environmental awakenings over the, the last half century. And it seems that over the last four or five or six years with Bernie Sanders and the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement, you really have a broad movement going. And I was uh, happily surprised to see that you are even inspired yourself by Greta Thunberg. Do you see a new youth movement in America? Uh, yes, uh, there is a very new youth movement that is centered on climate change and reversing climate change, protecting the environment, uh, also on human rights and on uh, social justice. Uh, young people are getting into politics here to a very large extent and larger extent than they have in many, many years. I think the only comparable year might have been 1968 or 69. Uh, and we are seeing, beginning in the midterm elections of 2018 here in the United States, a great deal of organizing and mobilizing by young people. Uh, that is the one thing that keeps me hopeful. Uh, otherwise, in this days of COVID and uh, fires and Donald Trump and police brutality, it's easy to feel sort of downcast. Actually, I was planning to start somewhere else because when I, I lived in America in 1993 and I lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I stayed with a family that were originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania. So I went to the bowling alley there a couple of times and they told me this used to be a great place in America. That was part of prosperity in America in the middle of the 20th century. Then later I realized that you were born in Scranton as well. And uh, our, hopefully the next president of the United States, Joe Biden is from Scranton as well. And I've, I've been curious for years to ask you what it was like growing up in Scranton. Uh, well, I don't remember very much of it. My father had a woman's clothing store on the main street, uh, Lackawanna Avenue, uh, and he sold dresses to the wives of factory workers, mostly. Uh, that's all I remember. I, I have a very dim memory. Um, he didn't do very well because uh, he uprooted the family and moved to another city, not that far from Scranton, but in New York State, uh, and tried uh, his hand at uh, really the same trade selling to factory workers, the wives of factory workers, selling dresses. Um, but uh, Scranton, uh, like much of the industrial Midwest, uh, did uh, find itself in the middle of a post-war prosperity that created the largest middle class uh, the world had ever seen. And that started right after the Second World War and extended and continued to the late 1970s. Uh, and then that entire middle-class prosperity, that era of middle-class prosperity ended and turned around. So a great U-turn in uh, the American economy starting around the time of Ronald Reagan. Uh, I don't think that, uh, I think Ronald Reagan is given too much credit or too uh, much blame for the turnaround. There were many other factors, but uh, it's extraordinary uh, how different America is today, not just economically and environmentally, but almost in every other way uh, from uh, it, what it was in those years, those three decades from 1946 uh, to 76, approximately. You were born just 
after the Second World War and after the New Deal of Franklin D. Roosevelt and growing up with Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society reforms, you were born into an economy that was that is very different from the one that you live in. Into what was the promise of the American economy when you were growing up? Uh, the promise of the American economy uh, in my young years was that everybody had a fair chance to make it and that everybody would do better in the future. That is, you could be reasonably assured that your wages and your salary and your benefits would be better and larger uh, in five years or 10 years than they are now. You would be able to move into a larger house and have more appliances. Um, it was a time of mass consumption and mass production. Uh, and uh, there was a great deal of belief in progress. Uh, the assumption was that everybody would be progressing together. Uh, there was not a great deal of inequality. Uh, the average CEO of a big American company in the 1960s and 70s when I was growing up was earning maybe 60 times the wages of the typical worker. Now, I remember at that time, I was appalled. I thought 60 times the wages <laughs> of the type of worker was pretty awful. Uh, and I remember criticizing that. Uh, but uh, relative to what it has become right now, the CEO of a typical large American company is earning 320 times the wages of a typical worker. Uh, well, relative to now, uh, that was the golden age. When did you realize that something was basically changing, that the promise of that era was being broken to middle-class families? You know, I began uh, looking at the data closely when I was uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, I was director of the policy planning team at the Federal Trade Commission, which is a uh, kind of an early 20th century institution uh, designed to keep the market fair uh, and also to make sure that it wasn't being, the market was not being monopolized by any one company or any few companies. Uh, so by the, by the time I got there in the 1970s, I had a team of lawyers and economists. We looked very carefully at the data and I began to see that there was starting to be a widening gap between productivity and the median wage, the wage of the typical worker. Up until that point, if you traced it from the end of the Second World War uh, up until the late 70s, uh, the median wage and productivity gains were tracking exactly the same. Uh, they were coterminous. But starting in the late 70s, when I was at the Federal Trade Commission, I began to see this gap developing, which turned into a chasm because by the 1980s and 90s, although productivity continued to increase dramatically in the United States as elsewhere, uh, the median wage began to stagnate. Uh, and here we are 40 years later, uh, the median wage in the United States adjusted for inflation, as you must do, purchasing power, uh, is approximately where it was 40 years ago. That is the typical worker here has not had any wage increase over the last 40 years. Where did the money go? Where did all those productivity gains end up? Well, that is a very important story. In the United States, wealth has accumulated at the top to an extent we haven't seen since 
the first gilded age of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, what we're seeing is that huge wealth has translated into political power. You can't separate wealth from power. And you have, therefore, a political system in the United States that has been rigged for the benefit of the wealthy. Uh, they put a lot of money into campaign contributions and into public relations campaigns uh, and into lobbying. Uh, and the net result is that the average person's voice uh, in our democracy has been all but obliterated, drowned out by the voices of big corporations and a few very wealthy people. Looking back on this seismic shift in American, but actually Western capitalism, it's easy to say, well, you had Reagan coming to power and Margaret Thatcher coming to power and Kohl coming to power in Germany to attribute it to new ideas and conservative political victories. But you also see some big changes in the way the market functions and big changes in productivity. You've emphasized repeatedly that markets are not free, that they're regulated by rules that we make ourselves. They're not forces of nature, but, but, but people used to say they are, but, but actually they're, they're shaped by us. What, what were the circumstances changing the rules of the markets in that era? Um, big money pouring into politics had an effect on the rules of the game, on the rules of the market. Now, as you just said, and I want to emphasize again to anybody who's watching, uh, a market does not exist in nature. In nature, you have uh, survival of the fittest, basically, kind of a Dar Darwinian system. Civilization is uh, and necessitates that we decide collectively what our rules are going to be. Uh, and those rules are everything from property, uh, what can we own? I mean, we've changed the rules. Uh, in the early 19th century and in the 18th century in the United States, it was, it was legal for white people to own black people. Uh, well, after uh, the Civil War in the United States, that was no longer legal. Uh, I use that example just to point out that the rules of, even the basic rules of property, who can own what, uh, and contract, and liability, and bankruptcy, change over time. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, after the financial crisis of 2008, uh, banks in the United States made it much harder uh, for uh, individuals, homeowners, to declare bankruptcy and to reorganize their mortgage payments uh, under uh, bankruptcy law because the banks, frankly, didn't want people to be able to get out from under Uh, their mortgage obligations. Uh, but you see that happened all across the economy, beginning in the late 70s, increasingly in the 1980s and 90s, and all the way through today. It's like a vicious cycle. The more wealth there is at the top, the more power there is at the top to change the rules of the market to benefit those at the top. And you can see how it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It gets worse and worse. You've witnessed this development over the last four decades, and you've been describing it, analyzing it, protesting against it. But you've also been part of the system as a Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. 
that was just in the same period when you wrote uh, the work of Nation, which was enormously influential. Also for us here at this newspaper, that was really groundbreaking for, for us. Did you think at the time that it was possible during the Clinton presidency to reverse these trends? Uh, naively, I did at the start of the Clinton presidency. Uh, because, uh, and I say naively, because I, I, I thought that uh, because I was going to be uh, a cabinet minister uh, in the Clinton administration, I would have a lot of power. I'd have the president's ear. I'd be able to do many of the things that he uh, had talked about in his campaign during the 1992 election, uh, that uh, I would be able to help effectuate many of the changes that I had recommended in a number of articles and books. But it was all pure naivete. You see, uh, in the American system, and I expect it's in most of, your, most of Europe as well, uh, if you are inside and you are uh, a, inside the cabinet or if you are a prime minister, you are constrained dramatically by what? Politics. That is, <laughs> there is a limit to what you can do. It's easy to be on the outside and to, to push. Um, and uh, that's a very important role, by the way. Uh, the more people on the outside, good people uh, are pushing and prodding, organizing and mobilizing, uh, it forces people on the inside, uh, and, and even good people on the inside need to be forced because the political pressures against them are huge. It forces people on the inside to do the right thing. Uh, my, uh, d my kind of disappointment in the Clinton administration uh, really had to do with my naivete, I think, uh, because uh, the forces that I was dealing with uh, coming from Wall Street and big corporations didn't really want many of the changes that I thought was ne were necessary. I think Bill Clinton probably thought were necessary as well, uh, but made it almost impossible to do the things that had to be done. Now, here we are uh, 25 years later, uh, and everything is worse. That is, Donald Trump, in many ways, is a culmination of 40 to 50 years of a failure of our political system to do what is necessary to uh, spread prosperity uh, and also make democracy work. We're a progressive newspaper, a lot more liberal than you are generally in America. Uh, so so we, had, we didn't have much expectations for, for Bill Clinton, but we had huge expectations for Bernie Sanders and for Elizabeth Warren. Do you see a new movement that is more radical than Clinton and, and Obama and that is inspiring new hopes for structural change in America? Uh, yes, I, I do. Uh, and again, I, I, I would be despairing right now if I didn't. Uh, the, the issue, though, is how quickly that movement can capitalize on uh, public sentiment that is already behind that movement. That is. Uh, even Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders uh, are only individuals. Uh, they happen to be senators, uh, they are well-respected, but they have a limited range of influence. Neither of them became a presidential candidate, uh, at least uh, the presidential candidate in the upcoming election for the Democrats. I think uh, largely because the powerful forces uh, in uh, American politics, that is the large corporations, and Wall Street uh, were afraid of them, uh, didn't want them to be the Democratic, either of them to be the Democratic candidate taking on Donald Trump. 
Uh, and so we can see that even though Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both had huge followings and continue to have huge followings, and both of them are incredibly important in terms of the movement we're talking about, uh, it is not until or unless that movement reaches a critical stage and scale uh, will it be able to take on and ultimately defeat uh, the powers of, uh, of big corporations and Wall Street uh, that don't want any fundamental change. But it, it, Bernie said when he resigned from his campaign and, and acknowledged that Joe Biden would be the, no, the nominee of, of the party, that he believed his campaign had lost, but that his ideas have won. And you see some, some signs in the Biden platform that he is inspired by Bernie Sanders, uh, his thoughts about the minimum wage. You also see some parts of it that seem inspired by Warren's campaign, by uh, American patriotism. Is it fair to say that their ideas have won and that they've been accelerated by, by what COVID-19 has revealed about America? You've seen inequality in real life and you've seen the fragility of half of the American population. Uh, well, let's put it this way, and I'm going to try to be as gentle as I possibly can. The ideas that Bernie Sanders first put on the table in 2016, ideas about Medicare for all, that is universal health care, uh, ideas about uh, universal access to higher education, for example, uh, his ideas, uh, and then Elizabeth Warren's idea, her big idea that she put on the table in this past uh, Democratic primary election season uh, was a wealth tax. Very yes. important idea. Uh, these ideas are still there, but they have not been embraced wholly by the Democratic establishment. Uh, they are not uh, platform planks in Joe Biden's uh, presidential campaign. Uh, and I think the reason is, again, because the uh, large corporations, the very wealthy in America, uh, Wall Street, uh, don't like them, don't want them, find them quite dangerous uh, and dangerous to the status quo. Now, these ideas, and let's just look specifically at a wealth tax and universal health care. These ideas are not radical. That is, they, we're not talking about uh, even democratic socialism in the United States. We're just talking about a little bit of a movement toward collective action of a sort that Europe has embraced years ago. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they are still not acceptable by the establishment either, and certainly not by the Republican establishment, but neither, neither uh, are they acceptable by the Democratic establishment. Uh, and because we have an all or nothing, take all or nothing system of elections, that is you win a state or you don't win a state. There are two parties, they're not multi-parties. Uh, we don't have a multi-party system. It is almost impossible for ideas that even are accepted by 40% or 45% or even 60% of the electorate to really find their way into legislation and implementation uh, unless a vast majority is supporting them. You're writing in your, in your latest book, The System, which is a wonderful, wonderful, very clear, concise, alarming and yet hopeful book that the, the real divide is not between right and left Republicans or Democrats, but between democracy and oligarchy. Uh, and and when, when you read this uh, from Denmark, you think, well, 
what is to Joe Biden here? Is he the face of oligarchy or the face of, of democracy? He's been part of the establishment for 50 years. He's been everything that's been revealed by COVID-19 in America. He shares the responsibility for that. Is it fair to hope for him as someone to confront oligarchy or is, just, is he just the next face of it? And Joe Biden is the only hope we have right now. Donald Trump uh, is the face of authoritarianism. Uh, some might even say fascism. Uh, the American democratic system uh, requires at the very least that Donald Trump leave, uh, be not re be reelected, uh, and that Joe Biden be the next president. Uh, now that only begins a process of pushing Joe Biden and his administration uh, to do the right thing. Uh, is Joe Biden pushable? Uh, would he be willing to do some of the things that we've talked about already, some of the things that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, have suggested? Uh, maybe if there is enough pressure on him to do these things. I don't think he's going to lead uh, the parade, but if the parade is already there, he may get in front of the parade. I remember I was in America in 2008, actually in San Francisco, when President Obama was elected because I wanted my kids to experience that very special moment. And I thought at the moment that was after the financial crisis and he had the majority in the two chambers in, in Congress and he had a very, very strong movement. I thought this would reverse the trend of 30 years of neoliberalism in Washington consensus. And I remember when I was there, I saw an interview with you on CNN and you were, I think you were advising him in the transition period or part of The Economist. And you were very hopeful at the time. You said, well, these are great people. We have a great moment. And, and uh, ever since that, uh, I, I've been thinking what went wrong back then? Well, I, there are a number of things that went wrong. For one thing, uh, remember Obama had a financial crisis uh, to deal with. And that crisis required him to spend a lot of political capital to get the uh, economy back to even a, a state of semi-normalcy. Uh, the political capital that he spent could not, therefore, uh, be spent doing a lot of things that uh, many of us wanted him to do. Uh, the other important point, I think, is that Wall Street played a continuingly large role in Obama's economic policy and his economic policy team, just as it did uh, in Bill Clinton's economic policy and economic policy team. In fact, many of them, the policymakers were the same people. Now, I individually, don't get me wrong, they're very nice people. I like them, I've worked with many of them, but uh, as a group, they do reflect the views of Wall Street. And the views of Wall Street are very narrow. They're very blinkered. Uh, they don't understand or acknowledge uh, the widening uh, and, and the perils of widening inequality of income and wealth. Uh, they don't acknowledge the extent to which political power needs to be reallocated in the United States. Uh, they see all of this in very microeconomic terms. Uh, and at best, uh, they think about fiscal and monetary policies uh, perhaps appropriately, uh, but they don't see power as the essential ingredient for changing the uh, policies. 
in other words, what we really need to be thinking about in the United States, and I, I don't want to be so presumptuous as to suggest you and Europe need to be thinking about this as well, because you, uh, frankly, are um, the average European is much better off than the typical American. But we need to be thinking about the United States as a reallocation of power. Uh, now, in economics, income and wealth are not zero-sum games. That is, in order for some people to become wealthier or to have higher incomes, it's not necessary that other people become poorer or have lower incomes. But power is a zero-sum game. In order for some people to have it, other people have got to lose it. Uh, and right now, too many people with a great deal of wealth in the United States have too much power. Uh, but we, we're very concerned about the American election here in Europe. And I think one of the reasons why is oh, we're culturally American. But another reason is that it's becoming more and more clear we cannot face climate change alone. Not even America can face climate change alone. You need agreement with India, with China, European Union and America. So the problem that is most urgent to young people is something that cannot be addressed by us or solved alone. And so, so that Donald Trump is not reelected is extremely important to, to, to the Danish youth here. It's something that it, that's very important to them. They, they debated a lot. So for us, it's a very, very decisive election that, that you have uh, coming up. After the financial crisis, I remember the Financial Times would say, this is the end of market fundamentalism, the death of neoliberalism. And we were writing a lot about editorials like that. Uh, I was very hopeful at the time. Now it seems after the COVID crisis that, that they see people writing the same thing. This is the moment of Franklin Delano Roosevelt style reforms. Do you think this is another political moment that after the financial crisis? It could be, uh, but uh, you see, neoliberalism is like a cockroach. Uh, it never really dies. You hammer it and hammer it and it's still alive. And if you don't keep hammering it, uh, it will just grow and take over once again. Uh, and so what the COVID crisis and the environmental crisis that we are now living through uh, creates is an opportunity. Uh, both of them create opportunities for fundamental change. But the fundamental change will not happen unless people are mobilized and organized, unless they are, have enough power to take power, uh, unless they actually have a big enough hammer uh, to kill the cockroach, or at least keep the cockroach from growing back. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yes, there is an opportunity now. If Joe Biden is elected president, I think uh, with regard to the environment, as I said initially, so many more Americans have a direct experience of an economic calamity. As I look out my window, I see the calamity. Uh, so many more Americans understand how urgent it is for the United States to take a leadership role uh, on the environment, on energy, on uh, nuclear non-proliferation, uh, on all sorts of issues. Uh, but again, the issue fundamentally is how much organization, mobilization, and power in a sustained way over time uh, will be brought to bear on 
Joe Biden, if he becomes president, and subsequent presidents. Uh, the other point I want to make on this is that in the United States, movements, we, we, we love to use the term movement, you know, <laughs> the environmental movement, the labor movement, the women's movement. The, uh, these movements uh, are mostly about tenacity. That is, a movement is only successful if people stay at it for a long amount of time and don't stop. Uh, they require stubbornness. They require people to bang their heads against a wall for years and years and years and keep banging. They require mobilizing and organizing and not stopping. They don't happen with a, an election. An election is just a, uh, an event. Uh, you know, the real work begins when Joe Biden is elected president in the United States. It seems that actually Donald Trump has inspired some very great protest movements in the US. Just thinking of the women's march right after he was elected, you even had a march for science. And now you have this very, very strong Black Lives Matter movement in, in, in America. In your book, you emphasize that any movement that wants radical change must confront capital and power first and last. Do you believe that there is what I would call sufficient focus on this aspect of capital and power in, in, in the movements that you have in America today? Uh, no, to put it uh, bluntly, movements that are protest movements, that are marches and demonstrations are fine. Uh, and sometimes they are necessary, but they, unless they're connected to politics and to the economy in some very practical ways, uh, nothing is going to happen. Every movement that actually has changed the allocation of power in the United States or in Europe over the last several hundred years, uh, those movements require careful planning and execution. They require careful organization connected to politics ultimately and connected to power and changes in power ultimately. Uh, a movement that is just a march on the street is easy. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's, but it's inconsequential. So do you think that this oligarchy that has been established in America over the four, last 40 years, that it's also supported by a certain popular culture, that you have a culture celebrating the rich, that you have uh, rock stars that are showing their wealth, that, that you have uh, the way that rich people are celebrated in the public, like Bill Gates, such a fine man, and Jeff Bezos, such a hero. You make movies about Mark Zuckerberg. There's also a cultural aspect to this oligarchy that is preventing these protesters from really confronting capital and power. Well, uh, obviously there is, but there has always been. That is, in the gilded age of the late 19th and early 20th century uh, in the United States, uh, you had people like Andrew Carnegie, uh, the big steel magna magnate. Uh, you had John D. Rockefeller, who owned uh, all of these oil companies, Standard Oil. Uh, you had uh, railroad magnates like Cornelius Vanderbilt. Uh, and many of these people uh, were charitable. They set up charities. Uh, there were uh, a, a, many, many Americans thought they were wonderful. Uh, they <laughs> worshiped at their feet. Uh, but 
ultimately they were robber barons as the that was the expression used at the time uh, they monopolized uh, they repressed wages they fought unions uh, they contributed to extraordinary inequality they made it very difficult for democracy to function because they paid off legislatures uh, and they corrupted uh, our entire system uh, and what happened well what happened was it came to a point in the first decades of the 20th century when america said we've had enough there was a great uprising starting with the sherman antitrust act in 1890 but extending all the way through the administrations of of teddy roosevelt and taft and wilson and then ultimately to teddy roosevelt's fifth cousin franklin <laughs> d roosevelt and you had a fundamental revolution in america uh, against the power elites that had been in control between 1890 or 1880 and 1910 or 1920. Uh, and that revolution carried us right through uh, the first three decades of the, after the Second World War. Uh, we need to have that kind of revolution again, and I think we will, notwithstanding all the public relations, notwithstanding the fact that Jeff Bezos uh, and Elon Musk and all of these characters, uh, you know, they 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 strut and, and fret upon the stage, uh, and they uh, they are you know many people love them, uh, and they're eulogized. They they have this great following. Uh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. They are ruining the American economy, and they are undermining American wages, and they are making American democracy dysfunctional. I've I've one last question for you. You've been engaged in this battle for half a century, and you've been part of an administration. You've been writing academic books. You've been writing almost angry pamphlets. You've write, written a book for children that taught me a lot about inequality in, in America. You've made two movies even. It seems like you keep believing in the power of ideas, even though the development has been against what you wished for for the last 40 years. What keeps you going and, and where do you see what makes you hopeful today? Well, uh, several things keep me going. Uh, one I've referred to, and that is young people. In America right now, we have the most diverse generation of young people uh, we have had uh, probably ever in this country, uh, even including Native Americans and including uh, uh, black people who were enslaved Uh, in the 18th century, 17th century. Uh, the diversity in America right now is extraordinary. Uh, and young people under 18, a majority of them are people of color. And they are also people who have a great deal of energy, uh, who believe in social justice, who believe in environmental remedies uh, and climate control and, and, and want to stop climate change. And these young people are, are already beginning to take political power away from the establishment. Uh, and that gives me huge solace and huge encouragement. Uh, a second thing that gives me encouragement is that, uh, as I suggested, history has a, uh, a tendency to move uh, like a large pendulum. Uh, and we've seen historically almost exactly what we see today. 
Uh, and the Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age is now being followed by now. And we are now in a second Gilded Age. Uh, and the progressive era that followed the first Gilded Age, I think we'll have another progressive era following the second Gilded Age. Uh, the other thing, and finally, let me just say this as clearly as I can. The other thing that gives me encouragement and makes me want to keep on fighting the fight is frankly, that there is no alternative. That if we simply allow the forces of authoritarianism and ultimately fascism to overtake the United States, to overtake the world as they did in the 1920s and 1930s, the cataclysm will be horrendous. If we allow climate change to destroy our planet, as I am now looking out my window and seeing, we are living in a catastrophe. Our entire planet will be uninhabitable. In other words, there is no choice. Well, thank you very much for being in this battle with such an inspiration, with such an enthusiasm, with the way you, you keep being radical and yet hopeful. You've been a great inspiration to us here at our little newspaper in Denmark for the last decades. You've offered us ideas and analysis that gave us hope to continue the battle. So thank you also for spending this Friday morning with us. Thank you for everything, Professor Reich. Uh, well, thank you. And thank you, Denmark. You have also been an inspiration to all of us. Det var så den første af vores langsomme samtaler med amerikanske intellektuelle. Den næste er med et ikon, som jeg altid har drømt om at tale med, men aldrig turde tage kontakt til. Det er nemlig den sorte amerikanske filosof, aktivist, forfatter, skuespiller og alt muligt andet, Cornell West. And I want to salute you, my brother, for being such a force for good in the language of John Coltrane. And it's always a blessing for me to be connected in some way with the great land of Soreen Kierkegaard, who has enriched and empowered me in crucial ways on the chocolate side of Sacramento, California, in the black community, that Danish thinker, helping me free myself so I can become a stronger truth teller and justice seeker. Og jeg kan love, at den samtale, jeg havde med Cornel West, som bliver den næste langsomme samtale med amerikanske intellektuelle, den ligner ingen anden samtale, jeg nogensinde har oplevet. 